hear some lyrics of well-known Christmas songs. Have a holly jolly Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap happiest season of all. Christmas time is here. Happiness and cheer, for fun for all that children call their favorite time of year. And then there's that classic by that great Tennessean, Elvis Presley. Uh, he didn't write this, but he made, it, he made it famous. I hear the bells saying Christmas is near. They ring out to tell the world that this is the season of cheer. I hear a choir singing sweetly somewhere, and a glow fills my heart. I'm at peace with the world as the sound of their singing fills the air. Oh, why can't every day be like Christmas? Why can't that feeling go on endlessly? For if, that, if every day could be just like Christmas, what a wonderful world this would be. So Elvis made that song famous, and in this Christmas classic, he asked two questions. Number one, why can't every day be like Christmas? And why can't that feeling go on endlessly? I will, by God's grace, attempt to answer those two questions today. And then I will attempt to answer a third question. What's wrong with the world today? And then, by God's grace, I will attempt to answer a fourth question, of which I'm not going to tell you right now, because I want you to hang in suspense to the entire message, thinking, what is the fourth question? But it's a very important question, and I promise you that it's worth waiting for. And I also promise you that some of you are probably already going to get to the fourth question before I get there. That's very possible, because this, is, this group here, this body, is above average intelligence and even deeper spiritually. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you that your word has the answers to every question we've ever asked. Every question that we've ever come up with, every question that has befuddled us, troubled us, confused us, your word has all that and more. And I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate us today in the light of your word in regards to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be reading in both Matthew and Luke as we look at the Christmas story uh, today. And in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, uh, I will be reading a passage about the villain of Christmas. Yes, Christmas does have its villains. Whether it's the Grinch, you're a vile one, Mr. Grinch. You're a nasty, wasty skunk. Your heart is full of unwashed socks. Your soul is full of gunk, Mr. Grinch. The three words that best describe you are as follows, and I quote, stink, stank, stuck. We need to put that song on the list next year, part of the liturgy. Let's work it in. They obviously know it. 
They know it, responsive reading. So there's the Grinch, of course. Even Hallmark movies, there's always some greedy land developer who's going to mow down the Christmas tree farm or something, I don't know. <laughs> or how about miserly, stingy, old Ebenezer Scrooge, best known for his, this is a Christmas greeting, y'all. Bah, humbug. Remember that? That's a Christmas villain for you. Christmas villains, who can forget Mr. Potter? From It's a Wonderful Life, at one point in the movie, our hero, George Bailey, says, Hey, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! To which our villain, Mr. Potter, replies, And a Happy New Year to you, in jail. <laughs> what a villain. So these villains of Christmas... Uh, these are all fictional characters. They're not real. They weren't real people. Christmas stories, Christmas cartoons, Christmas movies, they all have their villains, but none of them can hold a candle to the villain that we're going to talk about today, a villain whose life is partially recorded in Scripture, King Herod the Great. So now, let's read about this real-life man, this real-life villain, from an eyewitness account one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. King Herod the Great, a villain, a monster, an evil king, a man who tried to kill Christmas before Christmas was even a thing. When we think about Christmas, we don't think about this guy too much, do we? We don't associate King Herod with this most wonderful time. Uh, no, I just didn't do it. No, we associate King Herod the Great with the mass murder massacre of all the infant boys, not just in Bethlehem, but around Bethlehem. And this really happened. And you know, that's what Herod is remembered for. Herod was an incredibly accomplished politician. He survived for many, many years in an extremely difficult political situation. King Herod was an amazing builder. Some of the buildings that he built and his footprint still is on the land of Israel today. We've been to Masada, the great mountain fortress that he built. We've been to Herodium, the great mountain tomb that he built for himself. Um, we've seen the footprint of the temple that he built, one of the seven great wonders of the world. But King Herod is not remembered for those things as much as he's remembered for this mass murder of the infant boys in and around Bethlehem. So paranoid, so fearful to maintain his power and his throne that he had all the infant boys in and around Bethlehem murdered. And remember now, King Herod would be in his 50s or 60s at this point. You remember last week's message when we read the first part of Matthew 2 when the wise men showed up 
in Jerusalem. And they asked, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Matthew chapter 2 verse 3 says, When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So what did he hear? He heard from the wise men that a new king was on the scene. King Herod the Great. One of the most evil, paranoid kings in history. A man who had two of his sons executed, his brother-in-law executed, then his favorite wife executed, then his mother-in-law executed, then another son executed, and uh, you are keeping track, right? So if you lived in around Jerusalem when King Herod reigned, and you knew that King Herod was disturbed, you were disturbed too. King Herod, the great villain. As compared to King Jesus, the great Savior. In Luke chapter 2, turn there quickly. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, it's good to hear you. This is the word of the Lord. So we are thankful for the word. King Herod the Great versus King Jesus the Savior. What a story of contrast. Mighty, powerful, murderous King Herod enthroned in the fabulous city of David, Jerusalem. Lowly. Powerless, gentle King Jesus in the tiny little town of Bethlehem. And not only is he in the town, he can't even find a room in the town. Bethlehem is a small little town. And Jesus can't even find room to be born in the town. King Herod on the throne of great wealth. King Jesus in his manger of great poverty. It's a history of the world, isn't it? A history of contrast. I, I hope you're enjoying the characters of Christmas. I, I, uh, I found this on page 122, and, and I want to read part of this. Not all of it, just part of it. Christmas began long before that starry night in Bethlehem. It began in eternity in the councils of the Trinity as God planned to redeem the world from sin. This would involve a long and bloody struggle between the offspring of Satan and the seed of the woman. We, saw, we talked about the importance of the Old Testament in Sunday school this morning. We see this played out on the pages of the Old Testament where page after page we find parallel tracks of good and evil. A son of Adam, Cain slays his brother in cold blood, the seeming triumph of his works over Abel's righteous sacrifice. But God then raises up another generation and another of Adam's son, Seth. A son of Seth, Abraham, 
called out of his homeland to follow the promise of God. But three times Abraham's family is threatened by famine, by sin, by infidelity. But God births a miracle in Isaac, the son of promise. Another son of Abraham, actually a grandson, Jacob, endures family dysfunction, his own sinful scheming, and yet again another famine. But God raises up his son Joseph to save Israel. And there's others. Please read it, page 122 and 123. So now you know that when we read Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, and it says in Matthew 2.1 that Jesus was born in the days of Herod, you know he is writing this narrative as a continuation of what had come before. For Jesus to be born in the days of Herod, it might have been the worst possible time for a new king of Israel to be born. But Matthew is framing his book not as a tidy biography of Jesus, but as the clash of kingdoms, a study of contrasts. The story of Christmas truly is a clash of kingdoms. Mighty King Herod of Jerusalem versus the lowly King Jesus of Bethlehem who couldn't even get a room in Bethlehem. Rhonda and I have been both to Jerusalem and Bethlehem and trust me, we spend a whole lot more time in Jerusalem. Why? It's the city of God. It's David's city. It's wealthy. It's perched on a hill. It's spectacular to the eye. It's everything an earthly king could ever want. That's where he would want to reign from. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Most people, when offered the world's choice of great power and wealth as opposed to heaven's humility of poverty and suffering, will choose, well, you know what we choose. Russell Moore urges us to remember that Jesus was not born into a gauzy, snowy, winter wonderland of sweetly singing angels and cute little reindeers nuzzling one another at the side of the manger. He was born into a war zone. Jesus was chased out of his manger and into Egypt by King Herod, who also sacrificed Bethlehem's infant children for the sake of his own power. Do you remember those first two questions that Elvis asked us? Why can't every day be like Christmas? Why can't this feeling go on endlessly? The answer is because just like Jesus, you and I were born into a war zone. I think of all the sweet babies born into our fellowship this year. Nathaniel, Abigail, Ezra, Charlotte. Those beautiful little babies were born into a war zone. Every day can't be like Christmas because you and I, my dear friends, were born into a war zone. And then there was the third question. Do you remember the third question? What's wrong with the world today? About 120 years ago, a great newspaper, the London, the Times of London, posed this question to its readership. And actually, it posed its readership to several prominent people. And the question was, What's wrong with the world today? And the most famous respondent to this question was the well-known, well-respected, outstanding Christian G.K. Chesterton. 
Now, if you've read any of G.K. Chesterton's work, and I highly recommend it, you will know that Mr. Chesterton was extremely intelligent and truly articulate and well known for being able to write and speak with many a word on his way to helping you understand the deep truths and intricacies of God's words and God's ways. So when G.K. Chesterton responded to this question, what's wrong with the world today, his simple, short answer shocked many people. You know what his answer was? I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. May I update that third question a bit in light of the sermon today? And instead of asking what's wrong with the world today, may I ask why were we born into a war zone? I would direct your attention to your workbook, page 27. The story of Jesus started not at his birth, but at the beginning of creation. Though it may seem that Herod was the first to oppose him, the Bible teaches that a greater cosmic battle exists, one that has raged since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, and one that still, and this, this, is, this is, make sure you get this now, one that still exists in our hearts today. We were born into a war zone because all of creation became a war zone when we sinned in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And if you look at all the worldviews, all of the worldviews crumble and fall when they try to describe how evil entered into the world. But the Christian worldview clearly states that sin entered into the world when man disobeyed God and took the fruit. So what's wrong with the world today? Dear sirs and madams, I am a sinner. And you, too, are a sinner. This is not a real popular message in the world today. In a world of self-esteem and, and making everybody feel good about themselves and people being good, just naturally, normally good, which is not true. Because the Bible clearly teaches, as a matter of fact, in Psalm 53, the psalmist David said, God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah said, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him and the, for the iniquity of us all. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. That's the message of good cheer that I bring you this Christmas time. But I'm not going to stop there. Because it's specifically because of that, the fact that we were lost and were enemies of God, needing to be reconciled, it's because of that that Jesus came to set all things right, to make all things new, to give us the opportunity to be restored in our relationship with God. So here's that last question that I promised you, that fourth question, the one I didn't tell you before. The question is, what is this... What does this all have to do with me? Now, you know, on the surface, that question seems a little bit self-centered. 
So let's turn it into a prayer. Let's pray, Lord Jesus, what does all this have to do with me? What do you want me to see? What sin in my heart do you want to bring to the surface to eliminate? What do you want me to understand? What do you want to change inside of me? And here's the answer. Because King's Herod, King Herod's story should shine a light on the darkness of our own hearts. King Herod's fear and homicidal murders are mirrors to our own fears and murderous sins. Do you see, Herod, in your own heart? Do you sometimes think that King Jesus has messed up your life? Do you value the political power and vanity of this world more than you seek the kingdom of God first? Do you sometimes cling to your own power and influence instead of surrendering it all to the lowly king born in a manger because he couldn't even get a room in the podent town of Bethlehem? He deserves it. Give it to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what does all this have to do with me? What do you want me to see? What do you want me to understand? What do you want to change inside of me? Lord Jesus, help us to remember that we too were born into a war zone just like you were in Bethlehem that day. Lord Jesus, help us to remember that we, once we have trusted you in faith and placed our, our trust and confidence and our faith in you, that, that we are to fight the good fight of faith and to put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil in this war zone in which we live today. Lord Jesus, you are our hero and we worship you.